Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode seven of The Lion Theory. It's Luke Brabot here, and once again, we're joined by our good friend, Stu Adams. Stewie, how are you going? Good, mate. It's uh, very, very happy to be here again and looking forward to this podcast. And Stu, this week, we're going to do something a little bit different. Um, we've decided to park our special guest for next week. Yep. And the reason that we are doing that is we want to delve in a little deeper as as to your story and what got you to where you are today. So, we're going to have a really good, deep discussion about the Stu Adams story, yep. which we're re- I'm really excited to hear um, where you've come from and and what kind of gets you going and, and your passions and your mission in life. Um, so, Stu, please, um, you know, if we do hit any snags in the road and, and you want me to cut it out, just give me the wink. Right? Yeah, but for I'm, sure. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prod a bit today. So, it's going to be fun. And we all do it in love, but I think it's really nice to actually get to hear good, honest conversation. Um, yeah, it'd be really good for our audience. All right, it's going to be pretty raw, right? Yeah, yeah, we are going raw. So, oh, very so, nervous, man. Stewie, very nervous. Stu Adams. Yeah, mate. Tell us your story, mate. So I want to hear where were you? Where were you born? Um, what did you do as a kid? What were you into? Just tell me from the start what happened. Yeah, so I was uh, I was born in the Royal Women's Hospital in Paddington um, back in 1982. So yeah, I'm kind of old now, but um, I was born to obviously uh, Gregory Adams and my mum Desma. And so my mum Desma was uh, diagnosed with multiple sclerosis when I was six months old. And I've got an older sister called Kate. So Kate's uh, one of my uh, one of my heroes. Uh, she's very close to me, and we're we're very very close because of what we've gone through. And I guess growing up as a kid, you know, the education around MS, um, when did you really know that, that mum had, you know, a sort of, uh, you know, a disease, right? Yeah. So, you always, obviously, I wouldn't have known um, when I was six months old. And the, and the day mum actually got diagnosed with multiple sclerosis was the day her sister died of uh, leukemia. So, she was walking into the hospital at 6 a.m. in the morning with me, my sister, and my dad. And the professor um, who was looking after us saw her in the elevator and she goes, Des, I've got your results. Um, you know, do you want to come and see me? And she goes, oh, my dad was like, nah, um, you know, it's not a good time. And she goes, no, nah, no, nah, tell me. And then she found out that day uh, that she had the worst type of MS. Um, and then she walked in to see her sister um, and her sister passed away about two, three hours later. Um, they they believe, you know, my, my dad always talks about it and, and people always talk about it. They believe that, you know, she gave a lot of bone marrow and lots of blood transfusions and that could have um, assisted or, or, or been part of the reason that she gave MS. But she was um, so determined to see her best friend and her sister survive, she would have done anything. And so her sister actually got into remission, but she died from pneumonia. Her body just couldn't, couldn't handle it. So I actually didn't no mum was that sick until about five you know I, I can recall mum slipping over in the backyard and then um she she had to go to respite and um that that continued for many years after that so from from about five would be the time that i remember mum being sick and then in the confusion you know when i'm seven or eight where we had relatives around saying you know your mum's not going to live forever you know and, and and that confused me and um so I didn't really know mum was ill till around then, so and that really hit home and, and and very scary for a young young child. And I can imagine through your schooling as well, you would have went to school, but you always would have had that in the back of your mind. Um, I can 
can imagine like you know excursion times when you know the parents put their hands up to to go along or or even just hanging out with your friends and hanging out in that big group you always would have had that in the back of your mind that i do need to look after mom a little bit more and it must have been a, a lot more pressure for for a young kid to to feel. Yeah, we touched on this um a little bit in the in the last podcast, a few other podcasts if people listen. But um, yeah, I, I knew you know people would say things behind my back that you'd hear. You know, what's wrong with Stu's mum? Is she retarded? Is she this? Because I used to have mum used to come around long to the school excursions. She 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 was a trooper, man. She was she was absolutely. A superstar. So I used to have to help her, assist her. Like she would hold my arm, and I'd walk with her. And and you know, obviously, no one else's parents needed that assistance. And so that was kind of odd to the to my schooling group. And that caused a lot of conflict as as a young fella for me in primary school. I was I was very a very angry um, child. I was I was you know anyone that said shit about my family or anything, I would I would uh, end up. Um, you know, standing up for myself and, and probably overreacting and overshooting the runway a bit in, in primary school because I was just so confused. And, you know, with all that sort of anger and, and, and conflict happening um, so early on, where did your early joys come from? What did, you, what did you go to for fun? What did you go for to, to kind of get a rest or take, you know, take a step back and, and just get to focus on you for just a little bit? Yeah, so um, I was always into sport. So dad got me into tennis when I was about four, uh, made me hit the ball against the wall. <laughs> so he was a big tennis fanatic. But my real joy came in, in two other sports, to be honest. Mum got me into um, into rugby at, and when I was 10 years old. We're walking through uh, Carlingford Court Shopping Centre and the Dundas Valley Vikings were there doing their sign-up day. And getting into rugby would have been one of my saviors i'd say and i played basketball so basketball played out um, i was probably much more talented at basketball than rugby but i i enjoyed the the atmosphere and camaraderie and the physical contact of rugby and so as you travel through school you go into high school as well and how did your studies go in in high school yeah, so um, I was at a, a private school from uh, kindergarten to year eight, and uh, year eight we got pulled out of that school. I, I got told by my teacher that we were no longer allowed to go there because my father had, um, uh, and, you know, he he had been absent pretty much my whole life. He'd been in and out, and he hadn't paid the fee. So um, I moved out of that school, and we ended up going to Marichador High for six months, and then coming back to, to Sydney, and I ended up going to a public school at um, Marsden High School. Um, in West Ride, which is, you know, I've got a lot of fond memories there. But it was a bit of a struggle coming from a, a Rudolf Steiner German-type school, um, getting into the public system. Uh, you know, mathematics and a lot of other things weren't very focused upon at the other school that I was at. So, I, you know, I wasn't really focused. I was really focused on sport. I wanted to make it in rugby. Uh, I made up my mind that I wanted to make it in rugby, and I, and I put everything I could into that. I just want to go back a little bit. Um, you you mentioned you know you had such a loving relationship with your mum, but by the sounds of things, uh, it wasn't the case with dad. Uh, it's it's obviously you know being a young boy, you want to look up to that superior male figure in your family. Um, and I was always chasing his approval and his shadow and, and wanting him to give me um, that sort of, you know, like, you know, you're going well. And I never I never really got that. You know, he'd turn up in and out of my life and he'd always criticise or he'd be on eggshells and stuff like that. So mum was really my shelter and, um, and I had a really close, like, like, I'd say she was my best friend that I've ever had in my entire life. I absolutely love that woman to death. She's just a legend. And it's funny you mentioned about about your dad. We do have similar situations. My 
it's the only time that I ever get nervous is when I'm, you know, doing something, whether it be playing sport or putting an event on or, or you know, even working or anything. The only time I get nervous is when my dad's there. Oh, mate. Totally, I, totally. Absolutely. I, I, and it's funny, my dad, when it comes to sport, he never sits with the other parents. He will always sit on the other side by himself in the corner and then he will- Turn up, not say hello to anyone. Watch the game, leave, not say bye to anyone. <laughs> and then he'll, he, he he never really like he just wanted us to have fun, but it was never any pressure to do well. Um, but my brothers and I will all say the same thing that we felt pressure um, always, and I think it was because he it seemed like he didn't care, but he was still there. Which as a result, you thought he did care. So it's you know obviously different. Um, situations, but it's funny you, you mentioned with your dad, you always try and, and impress him and, and look up to him. We, that's something that we definitely share. Um, Stu, I want to go and travel more into the rugby side of things. Yeah, so, mate, you finish yeah. up school and then well, where, well, where do you well, go? So, I, I'll probably go back. Let's, we want to go back into the rugby things. I probably didn't blossom in rugby till I was about 16. Um, I made the first team in rugby league and rugby union from year nine at school, but um, I, I copped, copped a he- few head knocks as a young fella, so I lost a lot of confidence, and my confidence didn't really come back till um, I was about 16, 17, and so I started making the rep teams again, um, you know, and ended up making yourself while schoolboys, and, and and that's when I really um, knew that, you know, this is a passion that I wanted to go for. I always wanted to, but I, I stopped believing in myself a bit. And then yeah, I left. I left school um, straight into rugby with Parramatta Rugby Union Two Blues. So we were, we were a lot of us in the in the Colts team. We won their state championship in under seventeens against Eastwood twenty seven twenty six. And a lot of guys in that Eastwood team made Super Rugby. And we had a few guys in our team make Super Rugby. And then a lot of us went straight into Colts, which is under nineteens, under twenties, and then and they signed um, you know half of us on two year deals. So yeah. And, and was that was that when you got out of school? Was that your primary goal was to be a professional rugby player, or did you have a bit of a an idea about where you wanted to go career wise in your life? Man, I'd I'd say I had no idea where I wanted to go career wise. Um, rugby was all I wanted, but I also wanted to hang out in the social scene. I didn't, as I said, I was a bit um, troubled when I was in in primary school. I didn't really become a, a popular kid until I was about year nine, year ten. So. And being a part of that group, obviously, the social aspect is what you get involved in as well. So, um, yeah, I was focused purely on rugby. I was working a couple of days a week and, you know, I always had these business ideas and stuff that I wanted to do. Um, and I and I did something for my 19th birthday. My first business was uh, a nightclub. I did a nightclub for my birthday. And I and I, we called it Urban Vibe that day. Um, it was on a Wednesday night down in Eastwood. And uh, we, we made some money through that. And um, that's where the entrepreneurial started. But... Rugby was everything that I wanted, but, you know, we had a, a coach come in uh, my third year at Parramatta and we just didn't see eye to eye. He, was, he wasn't picking me and I was playing the best that I ever played. And I uh, moved, moved away. For, I couldn't go to another club for another year because I was under contract, so I uh, went to league. And I guess when you face that sort of first challenge in sport when it comes down to, you know, not seeing eye to eye with with the coach, um, did you use that as fuel, or was it more out of spite that you were like, "Oh well, you know, I'm going to give this rugby up and go to rugby league"? What 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 was the kind of main motivation, beto- you know, for switching? Oh, mate, I was using it for fuel for a period of time, but then it was just you you can only play to a certain level and and know that you you're not getting looked in. He, he had an idea that you know because of my height. 
that I should have been playing halfback. And I said, no, I'm a flanker. And uh, his idea was doing that. And then we were, we were about uh, nine games into the season, and I was on fire, man. I don't want to talk my shoes up. I talk myself up. But I, I was averaging about six to seven steals a game, and I was score, I, I was actually at 15 tries in nine games, which is un, un, unheard of for a flanker and unheard of for me. And that was in seconds. And then um, we I've always used to be playing first, and then we played against East, and he goes, oh, you're coming on in the second half at halfback. And I was like, whoa, you know, obviously you, you're not going to give me a look in here. And I had to make a decision. I asked for a release. And uh, the, the first coach, uh, Ford's coach, was actually Greg Mum, who, who's, who actually coached very high level. And he was keen to pick me, but he was just over, overruled all the time. And I just knew that I, I wasn't going to get in there. So a lot of my mates went to league and I went to league and I was only going to do that for a season and then come back. But I got stuck there for about six seasons. Right, and where do you play in rugby league? What position? Uh, that's that's where you know I, I was moved all over the place: fullback, uh, wing, uh, you know, number six, thirteen, second row, nine. Um, I've, I actually got mayor of the match in all different positions, but uh, that was very hard for me to be consistent because I was very versatile, so they'd throw me around. Yeah, and, and definitely rugby league, which you look especially more and more as the modern game develops, is you know it, it's more a cookie cut um, style of player where. You know, if, if you're a forward, you can play up the middle, you can play on the fringes. You know, it's a lot more spread um, versatility-wise than what rugby is where you have those specialist positions. You have your second rowers who obviously have their job to play tight along with uh, the rest of the tight five. You've got your flankers and eight who can move and, you know, can work in different pod systems around the field. And then obviously you've got your backs as well. So rugby league, I can imagine it would have been given that you were so versatile, it would have been quite easy to fit in anywhere. Yeah, and then going into that, like... In union, I had a job. My job, was, I didn't have to think. You know, my job was be around the ball, back up everywhere and, and fill those gaps. You know, that's a flanker's job to be a rover. In league, you can go missing. You know, you could be on the left-hand side in the centres or on the left-hand side of the second row and the ball might not come to you for 20 minutes. And that's that was the big thing for me. I'd be stuck in my head where in union, I just had a job. I just didn't stop, you know. And, you know, along with your rugby, especially in your early 20s, you would have needed something to support yourself as well. Um, what sort of work did you go into at that stage? Mate, I was uh, managing a, a service station at uh, Gas and Go at Wemmerfield on the, on, the Hume High, on the Great Western Highway there. And any stories coming from, from the Hume Highway? I can imagine it'd be a pretty wild place after dark. Well, look, yeah, man, it's pretty scary. We used to have a couple of baseball bats behind the counter just to just to protect ourselves, but uh, nothing uh, eventuated there. But yeah, I, my first career job was actually when I, I got into a relationship and I realised, how am I going to support this? And I, I got into telecommunications. And so you move into telecommunications do you still have, even back then, was there a fire to, to have your own thing or was it simply you were happy to tick the box, do the nine to five and then and then focus on the next day? I think um, my purpose then was like, I still had the desire, but I was just like, let's make money. I was like chasing the dollar then. I just really wanted to support um, the person I was with. Um, you know, I come from a pretty old school um, system where... I've seen my grandfather's and 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 my father's at, 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 to a certain point support the, the 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 person in their life, and that's not saying I don't want the person in my life to have a career or do those things, but just um, that's some of my my values is to be able to support the people in my family. And I think also your relationship with your mum, definitely supporting her through through her struggle, that definitely uh, there's a big correlation there. Yeah. So mum, mum actually. Um, got taken away from us when uh, me and my sister were, I was 
about 15 at the time, just got youth study so I could support myself and um, my sister was on youth study as well and mum got taken away from us around that age so we supported ourselves pretty much via study and, and, um, and, and that from there. So um, yeah, I don't know where, where I'm going with this but that's, that's you know, that was the, the pain, that was the, the fuel also to also, you know, to prove to my mum that at that point I realised to stop chasing my dad's shadow and, and the person that has always been there for me is my mum, and I started doing things out of out of love for her. Uh, I'm going to prod a little bit more. Um, you say taken taken away from us. Yeah, so mum um, got to the point. So as I mentioned earlier, mum mum was um, I used to have the sister walking around, and she used to to drive a, the car with a, went from um, a walking stick to a walking frame, and then to a wheelchair. And then some points would come home. Mum would be passed down the floor from having an MS um, episode. Um, they get lesions on the brain and, uh, and and certain things can happen. And, you know, we didn't even know she was alive sometimes. And then, um, you know, in the, the government gave us support with, you know, having a morning nurse and a night nurse. They became pretty much part of the family. And um, they reported that she was no longer fit for me and my sister to take care of her. And she was she was taken away from us and moved into a nursing home um, not far from my school at West Ride, down at Meadowbank, and that's uh, where she lived um, until you know until she you know passed away. And, and that was a pretty hard pill to swallow, to be honest. I can imagine. I can imagine, mate. That's um, that's really tough. Um, so you move into your telecom job. You know, you're in a relationship. Things are going well. Yeah, man. Like that's when I really started to get my shit together. Um, you know, I started off in uh, working for Origin Three Telecommunications. Uh, I started off working for the number one platinum business dealer, and you know, I started um, at the bottom. They put me in the retail store for six weeks before they moved me into the business team, and then from there, I went from uh, working there for about two years. I went to Vodafone directly. Uh, worked worked for them for two years. Was a top salesperson nationally. And then I got recruited by Primus, and then my last career was Optus, where I was a uh, into into mobility. I, they moved me into from you know small to medium business all the way up to enterprise. So I was very high up in Optus, and uh, I was I was going really well, but I wasn't happy, man. It was giving me a lot of anxiety and 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 you know a lot of pressure, but um, I just wasn't enjoying myself. It was the corporate life, um, starting to put on a lot of weight, um, not looking after myself. You know, at points I was playing in and out of rugby at the time as well, but I, I lost that passion. I'd go back and forth, and um, yeah, I, I was. It was you know, it was a it was a great career for the point of time. I was making excellent money. You know, had properties and all that stuff, but just wasn't happy with my purpose with it. And you know, we fast forward to now where where you've certainly, I think, finding your balance a lot better. And you know, with a athletic background early on, you know, you always do have the the feeling of you know happy what is it able body able mind yeah and and you've identified there that that wasn't the case which i guess may lead you to your next venture yeah mate which yeah. was what mate i started the gym in uh, in five dock um i started doing crossfit first so i went to this gym out at uh Parramatta Way called uh revolution x and um, I was like, you know, one of my mates at Optus, uh, his his cousin ran it, and I got there, and they go, oh, this is sixty six bucks a week. I go, what the fuck, sixty six dollars a week? Wow, this must be good. So I got into that, and that was the closest thing to having a team environment again, like you know, competing. 
um, being back amongst the community, being back amongst like the rugby boys. And so I, I started enjoying that and I did that for about uh, two years and I said, well, I want to do this myself. I think I can do this, but I want to do a more holistic approach. So um, we started a gym called Box HQ, CrossFit Canada Bay at Five Dock. It was um, about 1,000 square metres. So if you go down to Beefy Alexandria or, or, or any other functional training centre, it's about four times the size of those ones. And I, I started with four other business partners that I met at uh, Revolution X. And uh, we, I, I, I was there for about four or five years. Um, but the first 18 months was chaos, man. And uh, we had uh, really chaotic business partners. And, you know, they, they obviously I was naive going into my first business. And these guys were a lot senior than me. So they, they uh, you know, had it over me a little bit. Um, but I'm a pretty smart fellow and I wised onto it. And I, I found out. Uh, that none of them put their money in and only two of us did and um, they were doing some really dodges with the books and so then we had to go to the legal alley and I had to literally one day you know use my moral compass and say I can keep going on with these guys or I can simply walk away and and take them on head on so I planned it well I uh, got someone in there to manage the gym and then uh, one night I just walked away and then started firing legal letters and so, obviously, that's a pretty you know tumultuous time when you're having you know arguments with business partners. There's something that not only you're passionate about, but you're also is your livelihood as well. How were you personally through that? Were you in a good headspace, or was it something that was really challenging you? Man, it was so challenging. And you know, you might see me be be, be a bit blunt or in your face sometimes, but I hate confrontation. I hate upsetting people, and I hate. Um, conflict so it was a really challenging time you know to sit back and and fight through lawyers was you know challenging and and it got to a point where they would switch the cameras off I had to take the, the signage off my cars because they were following um it got real serious man so it was it was a very challenging time and that obviously put a lot of pressure on my relationship as well um i was married at the time and she helped me through all of it, and she's a legend. I can't say anything bad about her, um, but it really pushed us apart, I'd say. And you mentioned the marriage. Um, how long was that for? So uh, me and um, my my wife were together from 2003 to about 2013, 14. Right, and then the gym period was? 2012 to 2016 for me, yeah. Okay, okay. But well, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty significant event, you know, to... You would have been what in your tw- late twenties when you got married. Yeah, right? I, I got married at twenty. I got married in two thousand eight at twenty six, mate. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, that's that's a that's a big step, and obviously you can see, and the way we're navigating through this is you can see there are um, jumps between you know careers and and jumps between I guess focus areas. So you know you were juggling a lot by the sounds of things, um, but. It, the way you speak about it, it seems that you take plenty of positives out of that. And I guess back to the gym, mm. what were your, your major sort of positive lessons that you took away from that gym business for you personally? And, and what sort of um, rewards did you see? Its yeah, get? that's a great question. So for me personally, I, I learned a lot about legals. I learned a lot about business. And I learned a lot about people. I took it as like a, a, a fast track university degree. You know, I had to go figure out how to get these people out um, legally, and 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 when we got him out at the end, the lawyer said he didn't have a great case. But I was I was so obsessed about doing the right thing. Um, so I learned, you know, a lot about people, and and you know, I thought everyone was the same. 
you know, I, I think I thought we all transacted the same, but you know, you realize lots of people have different agendas. So that's what I learned from that. Um, I had a great time at the gym. You know, we had lots of lots of really high profile people. You know, um, you know the Fraz Duranis, the Bo Ryan's, the West Tigers, Adam McDougal's, John Stevenson's, Lauren Eagles, Billy Dib, and, and you know, even got to meet Fifty Cent through that partnership with Billy Dib. So. Um, got to be around a lot of, you know, um, cool people. And then I, I, we had a great, great community. And that's, you know, I, I love the mums and dads, the real genuine down-to-earth people. They're, they're my type of people. And just getting to know them, that was the hardest thing for me when I eventually decided uh, and it was enough, enough, enough time to walk away. And, um, and yeah, uh, I've really loved my time in that business. And, you know, I'll, I'll be back into that type of industry again in some capacity. And so you finish up with the gym. Um, you've kind of, you know, the the lawyers have gone in and, and sorted out what needed to be sorted out. And what was your next step after that? Well, if we go back to the lawyers, it ended up being like a Hollywood ending, mate. So ended up all, all coming to a head on a Friday night. Um, it was a rainy Friday night and uh, we ended up jumping in the, in the lift and a few of the business partners that were taken on ended up in the elevator. So it was quite awkward. And then we'll moved into two different boardrooms and we're going back and forth, back and forth. And I, I, look, I'm not really supposed to talk about this, but um, we ended up getting them out for a dollar each. And so when we had to go to the gym on that Saturday morning, we, we gave them more a dollar coin. And that, that was quite a interesting moment because these guys had to eat a bit of humble pie. Um, so... Uh, it was very, yeah, it was like a movie scene, man. Like, we're looking over the city in glass buildings up on level, you know, 16, 18, something like that, and going back and forth. A so. real suits moment, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a real you suits You had Harvey moment. in one room, Lewis Litton in yeah, the other. Yeah, and then yeah. it was phone calls going back and <laughs> forth, and, you know, that was that was a mon- monumental moment. But even even going on to that point, so the reason the gym also had issues, we had, we had a clause, 12-month non-compete clause. Guess what happened? And tw- month 12 after that. Oh, mate. What, what's a parallelogram HQ? <laughs> <laughs> they opened a gym literally two kilometers down the road. Yeah. And uh, and that was, <laughs> it became gym wars. And I was like, what the fuck? And because they had one of the good trainers in their, in their, in their, in their grasp, you know, people love to go to the trainers. So they didn't care about the conflict or the story. And we weren't allowed to talk about it. So. We end up losing about 50, 60 members at 60 bucks a week straight down the road. And it's funny you mentioned that, it, especially in business and you see it a lot when it comes to partnerships and partnerships that go sour. It It's very difficult to actually find a good person who is a good businessman. A lot of times you do go through and, and I've, in my experience as well, I've worked with people who are fantastic businessmen but are so cutthroat where they can put aside any sort of personal um, morals, yeah. I guess, for the sake of you know a business outcome. And so I can imagine for, for people, and we know people, both of us know people that are you know, one of the rare few that are actually good people, good businessmen, but they can always get played on that. Um, and it, I can imagine it would have been very difficult for you knowing that, yeah, they're going to be successful, but this is as a result of giving up their own personal soul. What what is you know morally acceptable? Yeah, you're going to burn a few bridges being a business owner, um, and that's unfortunate because you don't want to. And you've got to make a lot of tough decisions based on not what's best for yourself, but best for the business. You know, and I've I've been fortunate enough to surround myself with good people in my in my businesses from employment wise, but 
Um, it's very difficult when you've got to, you know, um, lay someone off that you personally got a friendship or a relationship with. So, that was the biggest challenge for me as well. And so, we, we wrap up the gym and I believe we hop on, what is it, QF? Yeah, so- QF7? So, I was out- 14. Oh, oh, I was 14. Oh, uh, yeah, going to San Francisco. But yeah. just, just, just pre, prior to that, um, I, I sold out of the gym for a ridiculous small amount. Um, which was, you know, at the time was fair because we, we were going backwards. And then, um, you know, I, I, I walked into a, a bar and I met um, these two people from San Francisco uh, and they, they, I hit it off with them and they go, we really like you, Stu. We want you to come work with us in America. I went, hell yeah, let's do this. So then, and then they started emailing me saying, well, we're pretty anxious to get you, but you've got a choice. You can go to London or San Francisco. And I just said, listen, uh, I'd, I'd, I'd love to work with where you guys are located. So San Francisco was the, the way for me. But just leading up to that, I was, I was in a different relationship and that was about two years deep, two, two three years deep. And we just um, we just broken up. And then seven days later, mum passed. And so I, was, I had my visa and everything ready to go. And... All this, you know, sold out of the gym, which I loved with a passion, and I uh, had had some good business partners in the end. Anthony, he listens to the podcast, bloody legend. Um, and um, yeah, so seven days broke up with the missus, and then seven days later, mum passes away, and then uh, you know, two weeks later, I'm on a plane to San Francisco to change my life. And so we head we head to the city by the bay, and. Tell us about what was it, about eighteen months that you were there. Yeah, I was, I was there for about eighteen months. And what and what did you do? I was working for a company called iPass, the world's largest Wi-Fi carrier. Um, my role was a sales director, and I had managed eighteen states. So my job was to grow the the portfolio, and we were selling a, a platform called a, a, we call it a software as a service SaaS, which um, platform with Wi-Fi connectivity, which you know you download an app. And that gives you connectivity in planes, in hotels. And America's got about 40 million hotspots with, you know, all those, you know, Verizons and ATP, AAP, what, I can't remember, ATT, all those guys, AT&T, there we AT&T, go. AT&T, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, all those guys were integrated in a seamless Wi-Fi app. So anywhere you went, you had coverage. And that's quite important for American people. And, you know, we spoke about, you know, airlines and stuff like that. You know, GoGo used to charge 20, 30 bucks. Um, just for a half hour or an hour service, and our app was like fifteen bucks a month. You get all that included. I remember when you know, about ten years ago when I first started um, going to the states, and I was I was a bit of a cheapskate, and I didn't like um, <laughs> hopping on the international roaming because I remember the first time I did it, God, I had a bill for about six hundred bucks, and I was like, never again. So I, I'd do the the Starbucks hop, where if I needed to get from A to B, I'd load my map up or whatever, and as soon as I lose my map, I'd hop. Straight into a Starbucks, load it up again, and go right. Let's go again. Funny enough, Starbucks was integrated into the app. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's very funny you mentioned that how the the journey from literally hopping Starbucks to Starbucks in order to get from A to B <laughs> turn into a a complete you know coverage of of absolutely everywhere. Yeah. So we, our, our app was global too. So it had about 120 million hotspots globally. So. You know, Telstra has air, Telstra air here. Um, you can see it everywhere. So it was, it was actually very good. And, and in America, if you'd, if you'd been there, the mobile networks are horrible. Yeah, so, um, 100%. If you've seen the Tom Brady uh, Gronk ad. Yes. Unbelievable. Eh? If you haven't seen it, guys, go look at it. Uh, it's on our Tom Brady site. It's a very, very funny ad. And so you're in America and culturally it, it is very different. Um, you know, they are 
they are different to how us us as cut Australians throat, bro. are. They're cutthroat, and they are cutthroat. And so I guess from from the West Coast, you know, being in San Fran, you're in that sort of Silicon Valley, and you're in, you know, where the technological hub of the world, really. Yeah, man. Um, where yeah. it all kind of happens, and the the home of the startup, and you know, your Apples, your Googles, everything is Everyone's there. Everyone's there, bro. I, I guess I guess there would have been so many people for you to learn lessons on when it came to that entrepreneurship, and when it came to, um, you know running with your idea, uh, what were the major takeaways that, that you took from San Fran, especially in that business and entrepreneurial space? Um, I feel like you guys, like people don't realize how innovative Australians are, okay? Um, and Americans aren't that innovative. They just hire the best people from all around the world. And what I took away from it is they, they don't really, like they love Australians, but they don't really respect us. They go, oh, they're just, you know, some silly Aussies. I don't, you know, and you know, when you come, I was told that I was going to have a lot of input in to bring in ideas and and creativity and, you know, and my role ended up being almost a telemarketer role, you know, calling, you know, potential clients and flying out to meet them. And, and that's obviously like, I don't want to say I was below, but I've already done that. When you've when you've done the pavement of, of telemarketing and cold calling and all that stuff, it's a grind to get back into it. So, and and obviously, like I said, a lot of things happened before I went to San Francisco. I was really I didn't realize how down I was. Like I didn't realize how mentally I was drained. I wasn't prepared to be there. I was absolutely fucking drained. And I guess you you're in San Fran, and you would have made some pretty good friendships there. I can imagine. Um, yeah. Who do you still keep in contact with those people over there, and 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 how are they? Yeah, man, I've, I've made a lot of friends, uh, a lot of Irish friends. Davy Burke, I hope you're listening to this. Uh, Ryan Griffin's the CEO's son, and uh, and Mikey, and a few other people. Uh, I remain in contact with them for sure. Like they were, they became family. Like we became, you know, if you've been to Silicon Valley uh, or or San Francisco. They call it the implant city of America because most ninety percent of people aren't originating from there. You know, everyone comes from different ways of life. So you could just literally walk into a bar and make friends with people. You didn't have to be around uh, certain anyone. And yeah, I made a lot of a lot of good mates. Had a lot of fun, um, and I probably was was having a bit too much fun to be honest. And I want to dwell on a little bit here. Um, you know, you've your schooling, so you know, you finished school and kind of when it came to formal education, that kind of was it. Then you go to San Fran, where you know every graduate, you know, is uh, well. I'm I'm from you know Cal Berkeley. I'm from Stanford. Yeah. I'm from Harvard. I'm from Yale. I'm, you know, and so you've got that uh, educational flex that Americans are notorious for having. On top of that, you do have the alumni community who will hire their own. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you as an outsider, did you see that as a barrier at all when you were communicating with your team? Absolutely not. I didn't see that as a barrier at all. I, you know, I'd gone through my, my apprenticeship in telecommunications. I'd gone through my apprenticeship in uh, Box HQ with, you know, the legal battles and becoming a business leader before I was ready to. And I felt comfortable in that zone. I felt, you know, I obviously knew a lot more things than they did you know having that experience and and been going through that conflict like we spoke about that you, you can't you can't learn that at a stanford while you're in a dorm room um so I, I had no no issues there at all what i did find difficult is you know i'm a very genuine person and um americans very very cool when they when they're doing you know taking you into the house and and doing all that but in the, in the job site cutthroat and i want to dwell on san fran 
the city itself just a little bit. Um, I, it's a beautiful, beautiful city. Um, hopefully, when our borders open up properly and we can get back over there, get to experience it because it's a real vibrant city, I find. And I can see when you say you probably had a little bit too much fun over there, that I can see that that's very easy to do. Um, they are a very um, fun people. I find, um, you know, when you are in San Fran, the way they do their sport is just spectacular. You know, Insane. You, you've got um, what used to be the Oracle for Golden State is, you know, right among the tech buildings, the same, uh, the Giants ballpark as well is right next to it where, you know, you'll finish your work day and then stumble across into the ballpark, you know, and, and yeah. sink a few suds and next thing you know, it's four in the morning and you're like, it's Tuesday. Oh, boy. Yeah, <laughs> that that's easy to be led astray, especially the sport is unreal over there. So um, I went to a few uh, Golden State Warriors game, which was insane, man. I, 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 we actually got to sit courtside one game, and that was the day that Clay Thompson lit up 66 in three quarters. Um, and that was in that's in Oak, Oakland. So, you know, it used to be a bit of a, a dangerous part of, of, of the bay, but it's absolutely spectacular now. It's like the up-and-coming Alexandra-type Redfern now, if I could describe it. Yeah, I, I actually got to go to a uh, an old gasoline station that's been turned into a, a brewery. I think I've been to that oh, one. Oh, spectacular. In Oakland, right? Yeah, yeah. I went, and, I went and, on a date there, I think. Yeah. Oh, I think I saw you. <laughs> <laughs> she was gorgeous. Yeah, she was. <laughs> what a woman. <laughs> yeah. God bless us all. <laughs> <laughs> no, but obviously we, we, we have that uh, the San Fran journey and then 18 months kind of hits and, and you make the next decision in your life, which is what? Come home, start my own thing. And I was determined, so I, I jumped on a plane uh, and, and just headed home. Uh, I wanted to be home. I was homesick. Um, you know, I love San Francisco. I still got a, a soft spot for it. And we had an office there for, for my current company, which we'll get into. And, you know, I visit there from time to time. And I always will visit there from time to time. But I, I come back to Australia. I went to a mate's wedding and then jumped on a plane to Bali. And I was sitting in Bali trying to come up with an idea. You know, I obviously knew um, what what type of field that I wanted to get into, but yeah, I, I was in Bali coming up with a business name and an idea, and I was pretty cash cash strapped at that time. And so you're in Bali, you know, you're uh, passing around the peace pipe, <laughs> and uh, you know, getting your yoga and putting your legs behind your head and all that. We sort did of thing. do a bit of yoga, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, how does your idea hit you? So I, I I kept on people kept on asking me, can you do your own Wi-Fi app? And I said, yeah, probably could. And then they started talking about. Um, I was more involved. I was more interested in the human behavior aspect. As I said to you, going through, I had a relationship just before I left, and and, and it was quite tumultuous. So I can't even say the word. And I was like, who the hell is this person? And then obviously those business partners that I had were very different, and I just became fascinated about human behavior and. I wanted to get into that aspect of, of, of you know, Wi-Fi because Wi-Fi can track people that way and I wanted to build an app. So, I decided I'll do that. Um, but when I was in Bali, I was coming up with a name. And how did you come up with a name? Uh, <laughs> it's, it's kind of anti-climax, but a lot of my mates are Kiwi. Kiwi, yeah. so I knew it. <laughs> and, they, <laughs> and they go, chur bro, chur bro. And I was, I was obviously a, a few bing tangs deep one night on the back of a scooter going down the back of uh, Seminyak, and I was yelling out to the locals, chur bro, chur bro, chur bro. And then the next day, I was walking down the uh, main strip of Seminyak, and they're all going, hey, chur, chur. And then I go, hey, I wanted a small 
name. I didn't want a long name. And then I went and looked up exactly what Cher meant. And it means hello, goodbye, and a sign of good faith. And that's a communication company. And that's kind of the values that we wanted to do for my company. So that's why I chose the word more than anything. And so we start Cher. And yeah, man. Oh. Talk us through it. So it's been, what What year are we in now? 2017, my man. So we're in 2017. Yeah. You know, the whole, um, I guess, the potential to work mobily um, yep. and, and kind of be present anywhere in the business space is really uh, becoming, at, you know, at the forefront of most businesses and, and you've hit it just at the right time. So, how did you kind of go about hitting your first clients and locking yeah. them in and, and expanding the business? So, it's a, quite a complex what, way to start a business. So, I, I decided I was never going to put any money into another business after what happened to Box HQ. I was going to use my experience. And then I had to come up with a concept and idea. So, at the time, I was doing a bit of contract work for Optus just to get by. And then obviously my mate Amos Roberts, which we'll have on the on the podcast, he's the next rooster and 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 NRL player. Um, in a few weeks, um, was helping me out with job, a bit of labouring on the side. And so I was getting by there. And then I was sitting in the Optus office one day, and then they hired two interns, and the two interns weren't getting any work. And the intern, one of the interns was called Chun, who's now my CTO, and he was sitting there. And I go, bro, I got an idea. I want to I want to build a concept app. So you got to bring it, build an MVP, which is a minimum viable product to to get it funded. And so he started building it during his internship while I was sitting next to him. And then um, within three months, I put a pitch deck together. Um, I I, um, I got, gathered some cash and then I jumped on a plane to San Francisco. I uh, went and met with um, my old business guys at iPass to try and get integration with them. And then I came back to Australia and I left that Optus job and I was down to absolutely almost zero, mate. Zero money in the bank. This is where it gets, in- this is where it gets interesting. So, you're at zero money in the bank. You've got this concept app sort of ready to go. Yep. And then, obviously, you'll have to be at the, at the forefront of face-to-face sales and you, make, you hit your first deal. Yeah, so it didn't quite. So I was looking for investment to build the whole platform. So when you build an application, it's quite complex. You need a front end development, you need back end development, you need hosting, you need a whole array of things. You can't just build a, an app and go here you go. There's there's so much detail to it. So um, I, I built a pitch deck and I'm going around pitching this idea and I'm I'm scraping by and I didn't want anyone to know. Uh, look, I can't. You know, you, your friends help you out. You stay at the place at the time because I didn't have any. My sister was only in a one better. And I kind of overstayed my welcome at a few places and I kept on moving on. And then I didn't want anyone to know, you know, I had to build this perception that Cher's killing it. Um, so I didn't want anyone to know. So I was, I was staying in backpackers and stuff like that. I was scavenging cash just to, just to get by. And then um, I get a phone call saying, hey, we, we like your idea, but we need to fly you to the Philippines. And I'm literally down to 50 bucks this time, like $50 cash. The night before flying to the Philippines, I actually slept in Bronte Park at the beach because I didn't want anyone to know what was going on. And so I get to the airport, check in, um, and fly over with the two guys that wanted to do business with me. And um, we spend the week there. They're giving me some pocket money to get by and obviously a hotel room. And um, we get down to the Friday. Right, I'm flying home Saturday. I'm like, fuck. We, we met with Globe which is one of the largest telcos over there, and they go, fuck, we like your idea. And Johnny, my business partner, was sitting next to me, goes, mate, that's awesome. And I'm going, man, what am I going to do when I get back to Australia? So they just just that Friday afternoon, 
Uh, they go meet us in the hotel room at 3 p.m. before you go. We'll have a debrief. And I had to be at the airport at 5 p.m. that night. And um, so I go in the hotel room. We sit down, had a debrief. And John goes, yeah, I'm very impressed. And Ray goes, yeah, like I heard some great things from John. Um, but we just don't know what we're going to do. And I went, oh, shit. And then they, they keep talking and then going, blah, blah, blah. And it kept on going on. And I go, listen, I've got to get going soon. They go, listen, we're going to have a talk in the back room. And we'll come back to you. So they went into the back room, had a chat, came back out, and they go, Stu, we're in. And I went, wow, you serious? And they go, how much do you need? And so this is our first $300,000 raise for Chirp. And I said, oh, 300000 will, will get you a good percent of the business. I'm not going to discuss those details on it. And they go, sweet, we're in. Um, how much do you need right now? And I go, as much as you can. And they go, okay, sweet, without any contract signs, without anything, bang, they transferred $100,000. So... I get on a plane, less than 50 bucks to my name. I don't know where I'm staying, where I'm landing. They've transferred the money to the business account. And by the time I land in Australia, the money's there, fortunately enough. And that's where Chur started. Went and got an office in Balmain, a, a, an apartment office. Straight away rung Chun up and said, Chun, you're hired. Here's your salary. And then we started building from there. And Chur starts to travel really well. Um, you obviously with that initial investment, you can hop along and and really start to build a bit of a portfolio of of clients. Yeah, so we our first customer was uh, Paddy's Market Haymarket. There you go, and you know you continue to grow, you continue to grow, you continue to grow, and we, you've we, got this yeah. big sort of um, I guess ready to launch um, all these projects, and then well, so let's lead into that. We had three offices, so one in Romania, we had six staff there. Um, got referred to them. That's why we had it. Good, great engineers. Then we opened an office in Manila and had nine staff there. And then we had about thirty staff in in Sydney, Australia. So and they were all basically uh, what engineers. All of them were engineers. It, it, you know, I had a few people um, that were UI UX designers, and um, and then obviously there's some people that sat on the board. And and then I had a, a friend who I brought in from uh, from school, uh, Alexander Lang. Um, he's no longer with the business because he got diagnosed with uh, a brain cancer about two years in. So um, um, he's been battling that journey ever since and he's, he's a lovely fella and uh, hopefully one day we can repay him for his services. And so you're doing really, really well. Obviously, that's a that's a setback. Um, but you have all these engineers and these back-end guys. Who's actually selling the product? How, how do you- Me, what, me. You, yeah, yeah you? so I'm doing all the business development. We had- we built a smart city, which is our first project in the Philippines in a place called Binangon, 350,000 people. Um, and then we, we launched our, our Wi-Fi app and uh, we integrated Globe and Smart and they all only had three, 4,000 hotspots. And we actually started a community network, which we had to add up to 25,000 hotspots. But the biggest problem with the Philippines is they got no data, but they, they've got smartphones, but they can't download the app because they don't have data to download the app. So, so this was a this is another problem we ran into. So we built a whole smart city in a place called Bino Garden, and uh, we lit up the area and we gave all the schools free Wi-Fi, all the schools. So there's about 15 schools in that area, and we provided that for many, many months. And uh, we're going back into that. Um, we've we've landed a, actually a fa- fair few big deals, which we're going to go back into and partner with um, some of the major carriers. But we ran into a lot of obstacles there. So I withdrew from the Philippines after spending a lot of money. I mean, you know, a million bucks AUD we spent over there. Um, and then we, we decided, you know, as I talked about the human behavior aspect at, at, at Haymarket, Paddy's Markets, we were doing human behavior. So we could see which door people walked into and when they walked into that door, we could predict whereabouts in that shopping center they're going to go. 
And then we bumped into a, a guy called Alan Ivory, which is uh, he's a business partner of ours and uh, a company called Eventry. And um, they do conferences. And we did a proof of concept down in Adelaide. At the, at the drop of a hat, they rang us up and said, can you come down to Adelaide and do a couple of rooms, show you tracking stuff for conferences? And so we did that. We went down to Adelaide. We were much more accurate than the technology they were using. And we, we didn't have much time to set up. And then we decided, okay, let's, you know, there's issues with Wi-Fi. There's issues with this. We're going to go all in with our own technology and start indoor tracking at major events and conferences. And you've got all these conferences lined up, um, you know, shows looking really good. And then you obviously get COVID hit. Yeah. So I was, again, went to Bali at the end of the year uh, with a girlfriend at the time and uh, came back, broke up. And then two weeks later, we signed a big deal with Eventry to do uh, 300 conferences globally, um, which we get paid quite a significant amount. And we're talking Google, AWS, Telstra, all the big guys. And um, we're ready. We're like pumped. And um, we're also doing a cap raise at the time. And we got valued at quite a significant amount of money. And then, uh, then, <laughs> then COVID fucking hit. So... I was actually more concerned because the ex was telling me she's going to a mad horse race down in Crookwell that weekend and and she's going to pick up. And I went, and then Scott Morrison gets gets on uh, the news on Friday and saying, no events above 500. I went, yeah. <laughs> and I went, oh, fuck. N- n- cheers, fuck now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, uh, well, it, it, it may have been temporarily, but I think you guys have come out the other side because you obviously would have been able to um, focus more on um, the the product itself and and well, yeah. fixing it, fixing the little bugs to have it Mate. ready for the the point of launch when when you come out of this and you may have potentially come out stronger. Yeah, we're going to come out way stronger. We've had more time to focus on a lot more features like indoor contact tracing. We've got deals of whoop. We're now about to be fifty percent taken over by a public listed company, which is huge for us, and and that gives us a, a, an area to grow, especially in Asia and all parts of the world. And then the conferences will open again in the next three to six months, and our product is absolutely more robust bust now than it was. So we could have been like 80 90% accurate at, at those conferences because there's lots of different things you've got to take into consideration when you do indoor tracking. Like people have water in them. That causes conflict. You've got walls, height, ceilings. So we've been able to build the, the best algorithm in the world and we can prove that because we've published it. Um, Lai, um, our, our vice president of engineering, he's a genius and he's, he's proven that with the collaboration of Sydney University. So We've actually proven our, our, our product, our concept, a lot more robust and, and we've built it better and we haven't had to rush. So we're just building at the moment and, and that's the thing. But we had to scrammage, man. We had to we, we lost we went from revenue to zero. So and, and eighty percent of our staff um, are on four eight seven professional visas because they're from China and they're getting PRs and stuff like that. Without the permanent residency we couldn't get job keeper. So we were in a world of hurt. But thank God to a thing called the uh, R&D, which is research and development. We've, we've managed to get through that and we've been pre-financed research and development. And then we've got a great new investor coming on, which is amazing. I'll probably pre-announce uh, that too early, but that's, that's happening in the next two or three weeks. And it's very exciting for the business to be able to uh, expand and, and do other projects as well. Again, we're doing some more smart cities projects, which I'm really excited about to give free Wi-Fi to people in need. And, you know, I think food and water is the main priorities for people in need, but they also need education and getting connectivity to those people is really, really important and part of our purpose as well to try and help people. And, you know, you have all this success with Chur that's, you know, about to be even more successful, but you don't stop there. So, 
a passion. I guess the next project is stemmed from a passion, which was um, your mum. Yeah, definitely. And then we move into Yakuru. Yeah, so you know, I was I became close with a mate that I hadn't seen in about twenty years. He lives down in Bondi. Uh, good old Richard Penny. Shout out to you, mate. Um, we started developing an app to to deal with um, um, COVID. You know, to be able to find those essential supplies, and we got blocked by Apple because I said you can't profiteer in the time of this, which we're doing it for free anyway. And then we became close, and I started talking to him about, you know, my passion for CBD. And, you know, I actually got into CBD, one, because of my mum, and two, because I was going through a stressful time, and uh, it really assisted me. And I said, listen, I'm going to start my own business. And he goes, mate, I've got a contact in America, a guy called Mandon Bossy, and one of my one of my best mates now. And uh, we chat daily, and we, we decided to start a business, and we decided to come up with a, our own brand. And Yakuru is actually a really, really cool name. It's actually a Japanese mythical creature, which means connection between human creature and the forest. And the Yakuru actually changes color based on the environment. So we thought that was really cool to our concept. And uh, we, we've started our proof of concept uh, probably around uh, July last year. And, and, and we've been going on since then. Um, we, we slowed down quite a bit because we wanted to get it right. So we're going to be re, rebranding, relaunching. And again, um, being fortunate enough, um, the, the people that he, who look, who invested in Cho want to invest in Yakuru as well because his father, he, his father actually died of cancer and he wished he had something alternative to support him through the pain that he saw him go through. So it became a love project for all of us and, and obviously he's seen what we can do at Chur and believes in, in the ability to man- administrate what we're going to do and ability to, to deliver. So that's really, really exciting. Um, we started rebuilding now. So, so we went and pu- pulled our foot off the accelerator, which is pretty difficult for me to do because I want to accelerate. As a CEO of the business, I've got to get key KPIs done and I need to deliver. But now I've had to tell everyone we're slowing down for these particular reasons and, and we're rebranding, we're relaunching and we're refining how we're going to do things. And it's actually a really good learning tool because we had like 15 different products on our website. It's very confusing. So we've decided to go down a path of a biohack kit, which will be called a bio-yak, a full yak and a half-yak kit, which makes, makes it makes it the difficulty out of how to take it, when to take it out of the customer's hand and we just tell them how to do it. And obviously, uh, at its core, it is a CBD-based um, yeah. yeah. business um, and with products branched off that, you know, and you do have your your sleep time um, assistance along with sort of that focus element as well, yeah. which helps. Um, I guess moving forward, this is a project that has come at the right time by the looks of things, um, you know, it is becoming more um, readily available and accessible. Um, how would you see if you were to pitch your Kuru to the masses, what is the point of difference? Ah, okay. So the point of difference is we're actually doing a, a biohack kit. So it's telling you people how to do it. So people don't, every other person in the market saying, here you go, take this product, 200 bucks, don't even give you information about it. So our point of difference is education. We're going to educate the market very, very well. And we have our own unique blends. Like you just talked about the nighttime. We have a daytime. We have one that put in the coffee so you get rid of the jitters. And we have a general release purpose built one for the daytime is like just in general purpose. So, And then we have a greens product. So all our products have a purpose and they fit into a routine. And we want to become part of people's routine, part of the community. 
and really, really, really help people out that need it. So our purpose isn't to profiteer from this completely. You know, obviously we have to make money as a business and report that back to our shareholders and stakeholders, but our purpose is to be a trust company that does the right thing by people and not this over-the-night snake oil. If you go do a lot of research on CBD companies, 85% of people out there are selling things that, you know, that they don't have the, the contents, they don't have the, the levels of CBD, they don't, they're just ripping people off. So everything that we do has a certificate of analysis. So, you know, you can see what's in, what's actually in there, toxicity report. And yeah, so I, I feel like, you know, education, trust and purpose. One final question, Stu. Where do you see yourself in 10 years? Um. Hopefully, doing similar stuff with Yakuru and Chur and 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 building things to help people out, you know, things of purpose. So, I guess like you know, Yakuru is obviously going to grow and expand, and we're going to build a retreat, and we're going to get into recovery and partner with gyms and stuff like that. But yeah, in ten years' time, hopefully, have a, a great family, a great foundation, and a solid base to to work off and 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 be happy, mate. That's that's the ultimate goal, right? Be present, be happy, and and be there for my family, friends, and and that would be the ultimate goal for me. Uh, awesome, awesome, awesome. Now, before um, we sign off on the podcast, today has been a bit different. It's been a little bit more prodding on on Stu, and we thank Stu for being so open about everything, especially with the personal stuff. But at the end of the day, it's really important to talk about those things. I think both Stu and I are going to walk out of the room today feeling really, really good about ourselves, about each other, and about our friendship because it is nice to know that you do have people to talk to, and don't forget that you do have those closest to you that are willing to not only listen but to help. Now, we do have an announcement to make regarding our uh, question of the week last week. So, Stu, I'll let you take the reins on that one. Yeah, mate. So, the question of the week was, uh, the winner was, uh, what would you tell yourself five years ago? And I just want to make it clear that um, Luke does not know who sends these questions in. So I'm do. I'm the question master. And the winner is Molly Quinn. So, congratulations, Molly. They're in, they're in the mail. You'll receive them next week. Please post when you get them. And... Uh, yeah, they're better than Beats by Dre, I reckon. Oh yeah, well, good on you, Molly. Well done. That's um, I, I got like qu- I said, I, I I don't actually, and this is the reason why. Like a lot of my friends um, post the questions and that sort of thing, and and I tell Stu just keep me out of it. I just read the question. That's it, and because it it's actually fun to get it on the spot and have to answer on the spot. But no, well done, Molly, and. We will take questions for next week when we do have our next special guest, which we will reveal uh, early next week. However, just to close things off, Stu, it has been a pleasure to learn more about you today. This has been The Lion Theory. We look forward to your company next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks, guys.